Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on all things British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the departure of Priti Patel, the arrival of Penny Mordaunt, and how Brexit questions about Northern Ireland can be resolved. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, Brussels Bureau Chief Alex Barker, and Henry Newman from the Open Europe Think Tank. Thank you all for joining. It's all been going so well for Theresa May's government this week. The row over Priti Patel's secret meetings in Israel reached a breaking point, with the International Development Secretary jetting halfway across the world to hand in her resignation. Her replacement came in the form of the former Disability Minister Penny Mordaunt. This has pleased Conservative MPs, but the May government is still anything but strong and stable. Is the Prime Minister in as much power as some seem to think? So, George Parker, it's been another tumultuous week in British politics. We've had the second cabinet resignation in the space of a fortnight with first Sir Michael Fallon and now Priti Patel. Just give us a bit of background on how we arrived at this and Miss Patel decided to resign. Well, it's been a sorry tale, really, from the beginning. First of all, the BBC, BBC's James Landau discovered that Priti Patel had been on a trip to Israel during the summer and had held some unauthorised meetings. She explained that she was on a private family holiday. But it soon developed into a much bigger story about the fact that she'd met the Israeli prime minister while she was there without telling the foreign office or indeed Num 10. And then when she was called in by Theresa May for an explanation, she didn't give a full explanation, half-hearted one really. And when it emerged, other meetings had taken place. She was summoned back from an official trip to Africa, whereupon she was forced effectively to resign by the prime minister. And as you say, it was the second resignation in the course of a week and sign of the turmoil really that's gripping Theresa May's government at the moment. Yes, you do have to feel a little bit sorry for the prime minister because obviously you've got the sexual harassment scandals continuing to engulf Westminster, everybody waiting to see who or what is going to emerge next. But the Pretty Patel thing really came out of nowhere. And I think a lot of people have been wondering, what was she really up to here? And she's had eyes on a leadership bid at some point in the future. Maybe she still will. And there's been some speculation. She was trying to build bridges with other foreign leaders, with other donors for that in the future. But it seems very naive of Miss Patel to think she could hold a Secretary of State brief and just dip straight into what the Foreign Office should be doing without telling the Foreign Office and then apparently misleading the Prime Minister. Well, as you say, it's not Theresa May's fault that the ministers behave in completely ridiculous fashion like the way, as Chris Patel did, or indeed that ministers, in the case of Sir Michael Fallon, embroiled in allegations of improper behaviour. But bad luck tends to stick to you when you're in trouble, and that's what's happening at the moment. In the case of Priti Patel, you're right, and there are lots of rumours and speculation circulating about what she, why she did it. And I think probably you're right that she was keen to ingratiate herself with big Tory donors. Um, there's no doubt at all that she fancied a chance at the Tory leadership. Building up donor base would be one way of doing it. I think there's another thing, which is she doesn't really fit into the sort of neat mode of a minister who works within the Whitehall machine. She's always wanted to do things slightly outside the official net. He wants to try and take some lunch with Priti Patel, for example. You'd often do it privately rather than through her private office. So it's kind of the way she did business. But at its heart, rank stupidity, as you alluded to there, the idea that you could somehow pursue your own private foreign policy in an area 
centre, this is the Middle East, have meetings with the Prime Minister of Israel, amongst 11 other officials, and then expect it not to come out, is extraordinary. So I think you can have all sorts of theories. Ultimately, Priti Patel was brought down by her own stupidest friend. And then just to add another level of complexity, we've had this counter-accusation that was first voiced in the Jewish Chronicle and has also been promoted by Tom Watson, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, that there was some kind of conspiracy between Downing Street and Miss Patel about these meetings. And they actually did know more about them, but they somehow said to her, don't say this, don't admit to it in public, and we'll brush it all under the carpet. And there's not and number 10 has strongly denied it this week. And it seems quite odd to me they would want to engage someone like Miss Patel, who's not really in the May tent at all, um, in some kind of conspiracy. No, exactly. Well, you rightly point out, Downing Street has categorically denied those things. If, if Theresa May wanted some sort of back channel to Netanyahu, I think the last person she would have entrusted with that kind of mission would have been Priti Patel. And as we always know, with these scandals, often the cover-up rather than the initial offence brings the minister down. So the idea that Downing Street would want to become complicit in covering up, I think, is... Uh, frankly unbelievable because of course that could have um, brought the danger much closer to Theresa May's front door. So Patel was out and Penny was in and Penny Morant who was the disability minister has now been promoted to the cabinet and unlike um, Gavin Williamson's appointment to the uh, defence secretary last week George it seems like it's gone down pretty well most Tory MPs I spoke to this week seem to think it was actually a good move by Theresa May because Penny is well respected she served several ministerial portfolios she's a Brexiter so she holds that balance within the cabinet and also she's female she's keeping the balance at the top of government right so Theresa May's made the right call here even if it was quite enforced by her party I'd heard there was quite a lot of back channeling from Conservative MPs saying Penny is the obvious solution to replace Pretty. if you don't put her in here we're going to be very unhappy Yes I think that's right a lot of people were speculating that Penny Morden would have been the obvious choice to replace Sir Michael Fallon last week given the fact she has a military background and as you say, she's popular in the Conservative Party, actually quite popular across party lines. She's made a couple of memorable, somewhat ribald speeches in the House of Commons, which earned her quite a lot of kudos among her colleagues. So I think she's a popular choice. I'm a bit surprised she wasn't appointed to the Ministry of Defence last week. And as you say, given the way that Theresa May's appointment of Gavin Williams spectacularly backfired last week, I think if she'd overlooked Penny Morden again, that would have caused trouble. And effectively, as you say, she's a like-for-like replacement hotel. She's a Brexiter. She's a woman. And in fact, there are very few people in that little subset of MPs who were in a ministerial position already that Theresa May could have turned to. So in the end, it was a pretty much a straightforward choice, I think, and, and the right one. And obviously that entailed another bit of a reshuffle with two other appointments with Sarah Newton replacing Penny Mordant in the disability brief. But more interesting, Victoria Atkins, who is the first 2015 MP to be promoted into ministerial office. And there's been a lot of talk and examination of the 2015 and 27 intake of Tory MPs because these are Cameron's children, people who were came into the party inspired by him, moulded in his vision of liberal conservatism as opposed to past leaders and the the party's been yearning for these people to be given more of a platform. And you've got people like Tom Tugginhart at the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, James Cleverley and Kemley Badenoch, who have got public profiles. But Victoria Atkins is the first to jump that line into government there. And she, again, seems like an appointment that's gone down pretty well across the party. Yeah, extremely well. I, I can't claim to know Victoria Atkins very well. But the fact of the matter is, it's the symbolism, the fact that she's the first of the 2015 intake into the government. And you alluded to it there, that there's a whole generation of MPs who are talented, quite a few of them with military backgrounds, interestingly, who came in hoping to 
transform society, do good work, and they found themselves bogged down in this parliament that's going to be dominated by Brexit, a policy which many of them have never supported, and they're deeply frustrated. So there's a yearning, as you say, for people from that generation to get their foot on the ministerial ladder, and it's interesting that she's been appointed now. And of course, you know, we we talk about this sort of, you know, this, this generation waiting, but two years, frankly, is not very long, is it, really? When you look back at no. the historical sweep of things, so, so Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, let's think, they were elected as MPs in 1983. It was 14 years before they came to, to senior office. So political careers have been accelerated, and I think um, sometimes to the detriment of British politics, you get ministers who aren't particularly experienced getting into quite prominent positions. But I think the 2015 intake should be brought on as quickly as possible. The only question, though, is whether any of them are going to be ready for the battle for the succession when Theresa May goes, whenever that might be. If you're being optimistic from her point of view, if she gets through to 2019, will the Victoria Atkins generation be quite ready to move up to that you know, the top level by then. I somehow doubt it, but it's an interesting experiment. I think this is going to be the big decision for the party when the era of May comes to an end. Who knows when that will be at this point? But they want to present the Conservative Party that goes to the country next time as a new party, much like how Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party is very different to Ed Miliband's Labour Party. And so by doing that, they want to have new faces, new policies and new ideas. But as you said, it's about that experience there. But Theresa May did avoid having a much bigger reshuffle. It's something the FT has urged the Prime Minister to do, saying she doesn't really have that much to lose at the moment with the drip of her authority being brought away every single day. And I suppose the real question now is focusing on Boris Johnson and Damien Green. So Boris Johnson has made these very controversial remarks about a British citizen who's currently imprisoned in Iran, where he said that she was training journalists, not accused of training journalists, and has totally refused this week to come back from that. And also the ongoing investigation into Damien Green. How do you see those two playing out, George? Do you think there's any chance of them having to leave the cabinet or are we going to have a bit of calm and stability for the foreseeable future? <laughs> I, I doubt the latter. I mean, the reason that she didn't conduct a much bigger reshuffle, apart from anything else, was because of the continuing cloud of doubt over some of her senior ministers. I mean, you could barely make it up, could you? The Pretty Tell case, the Sir Michael Fallon case, the fact that Damien Green had deputies having his private life trawled through by the cabinet office. Boris Johnson making mistaken comments which could earn a British citizen an additional five years in jail. All of these things contribute to a sense of chaos. You're right, the FT has urged Theresa May to have a, a wider reshuffle. I think that probably would be a good idea in the normal scheme of things. I think the problem that she's grappling with, of course, is that you demote two or three ministers and you end up with two or three enemies on the back benches. And when you've only got a majority of 13 with the help of the DUP, can you afford to make those kinds of enemies? So that's what's holding her back. But yes, I mean, can Boris survive? I mean, there's speculation, as we know, that maybe if she was being super bold after the budget, she could do a dual demotion of Boris Johnson on the Brexit side and Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, on the Remain side. But she's going to have to be really brave to do that. Just think how the markets would react if Philip Hammond, often regarded in the city and in business, as the grown-up in the room on Brexit, if he was removed, how would that go down? I think it's hard to remove Boris Johnson without having a sort of balancing sacking on the other side of the ledger. So although I think most of us would agree that refreshing this moribund cabinet would be an excellent idea, I'm somehow doubtful it's going to happen anytime soon. One thing we have seen this week, though, I think, is how much the May government is really a coalition between Remainers and Leavers, not really too dissimilar to the Liberal Democrat Conservative administration of 2010 to 2015, because constantly all the talk has been, how can she keep that balance with the cabinet, not who's the best person for the job because if you take an entirely objective view you might say Rory Stewart who is a junior minister at the Department of International Trade and historian he's someone who would be much
much better suited, safe for the Diffid role, but he's not a Brexiter in the way that Penny Mordaunt is. And I guess this is going to be the constant challenge for the May government, however long it lasts, is keeping those sides of the party happy. And that really binds her hands in how much she can do. Yeah, and that's particularly relevant because, of course, we've got the biggest decision facing this government looming over the horizon, probably has to be taken in the next two or three months, which is what is Britain's final relationship with the EU going to look like? Are we going to be a sort of remote Canada-style country or are we going to have a much closer Norwegian-style relationship? That's an issue which is a huge thought line running through the Conservative Party and running right through the Cabinet. So until that issue is resolved, at least, we could only see this um, this government through the prism of Brexit. And of course, probably beyond that, you know, you know the fact that we're still talking about possibility that maybe somehow in 2019, the country might change its mind and whether Article 50 can be reversed and Theresa May writing the date of Brexit into the bill to make sure it's not reversed. The fact that that is even still out there suggests that Brexit will be the dominant theme through 2019 until Theresa May leaves office, probably. And then even beyond that, we're into a transition period, which will take us more or less to the end of the parliament. So, you know, Brexit will dominate this parliament. And I can't remember who it was who said it. It was George Bridges who said that um, to think of this parliament as not being about Brexit would be a bit like thinking, thinking the 1940-45 parliament wasn't about World War II. Indeed. And finally, the last question we've really had on and been discussing this week is, is this government really on the edge? And I think that's a bit over-egged because if Theresa May was to stand down, it's relatively rare for Prime Minister to stand down just out, not after an election or a botched referendum or what have you, because there's no obvious choice to replace her. And through all these scandals and political intrigue, all the obvious candidates at the top of government, except perhaps Amber Rudd, are not really eligible to stand to challenge her or to run for the leadership after she goes. So even though it's been a very difficult week for Theresa May, I still feel as if the most likely thing is that she's going to be here for a bit longer and the party really does want her to see through Brexit because if someone else arrives, as you said, it opens up that whole can of worms about what does it look like and what does the party stand for. So although it's tempting to say this situation is all totally unsustainable, it feels as if it might still be quite sustainable for a bit longer. Well, John Major showed how sustainable this kind of ongoing chaos can be in the 1990s, didn't he? And yes, you're right. We quite frequently read in in other newspapers that um, Theresa May's one crisis away from being toppled. I think, frankly, she could have a different crisis every week. Actually, more or less what's happening at the moment. (laughs) And she'd still be safe because they say the calculation the Tory party's made is that removing Theresa May would create more problems than it solved. The big unknown is who would emerge her successor. The one known is that it would be bruising, bloody civil war with Europe at its heart, which would probably tear the Conservative Party apart. So nobody thinks that Theresa May is doing a fantastic job in the Conservative Party, but what they do think is that removing her would cause a hell of a lot more problems than it would solve. The Brexit talks started up again this week and you didn't hear that much about them because not much progress has been made. The deadlock over the UK's divorce bill, the lack of deal over EU citizens' rights and the continued complicated questions about the ball with Northern Irish Republic mean that no agreement on the first stage of talks is on the horizon. Michel Barnier from the EU side said in his press conference today there was just two weeks left to save an orderly Brexit before that crucial December summit. Alex Barker, just how bad are things here? We always thought there was going to be a bit of a stalemate in November. Have we reached that part or is stuff happening behind the scenes? There is a serious discussion going on behind the scenes, but you can feel the mood among some of the negotiators is turning a bit more pessimistic. It's quite a big challenge to pull everything together for December. They can see a deal, but time is short. Politics is difficult. And I'm not sure quite yet that 
they've really got to a point of understanding how they can kind of make the mix work for Theresa May and for the EU side. Because Henry Newman, obviously, there's both sides have got their stakeholders here for Theresa May. Her main thing is to keep an eye on the Brexiters and her party. And on the issue of citizens' rights, I think that's the one that's probably closest to finding some kind of agreement. But it comes back to this divorce bill. And the FT had a story this week that the Treasury has essentially signed off whatever Theresa May needs to pay to make that happen. There might be something in the budget on the 22nd of November. But there's still been no talk at home here about this idea of having to up how much is being paid. And again, it's all spoken about in generalities but that's really over to the Prime Minister to do the running on that issue. Completely. And I think this has obviously been a very difficult few weeks for the Prime Minister with all kinds of other distractions, loss of two cabinet ministers in a week and so on. Uh, so many things on her plate, but she does need to get a, a move on the money. And she said quite a lot in her Florence speech, but she hasn't laid out any further details. That was and, two months ago. Uh, right. And But also that would, those were sentences in a speech rather than a technical document which the EU is looking for so that they can then negotiate around. Equally, I mean, I accept Alex's point that the politics is difficult and there's things to, sort of, to get on with. But ultimately, the sufficient progress test is a political political test. It's not a technical test. And uh, diplomats of a senior and important EU country made that very clear to me that they inserted the phrase sufficient progress precisely because it was not a technical test and could be massaged. So if the commission wants to wave the UK through, they can wave the UK through. I don't think they'll do that until we're clear about the money. Well, I mean, just to, on that point, you know, because it is a political test, it's actually probably not in the gift of the commission entirely. And, you know, I can't imagine a situation where Michel Barnier, the EU's negotiator, doesn't sign off sufficient progress and the member states do. Mm. But I can imagine a position where the commission say, look, we've done pretty well, but the members take a bit of tougher line. They've shown they're willing to do that already in October when he suggested doing transition talks. And I think that political call is still going to be quite unpredictable. They're pretty unified and you could see we'll discuss the Irish move later, but everyone now sees the end game approaching on the divorce and making sure that they're covered in the way they want to be on their various interests. What do you give the chances of getting that nod in December now, Alex? Because for Theresa May, this is a huge test in the UK. If it doesn't go through, then, you know, I'm sure a lot of it will be blamed on this so-called intransigence of Brussels, but a lot of it will be piled on her plate too, and it would be seen as a failure in her government as well. So they must be aware, and we heard that Brussels is contemplating or preparing for a potential change of prime minister given the events Henry was saying that we've had this week with two cabinet ministers departing. They must be aware this is a really crucial time for the British government as well as the Brexit talks. Indeed, I mean, everyone's watching from here and see a very messy political situation. And if anything, that's making them kind of shy away from engaging in the kind of compromises or overtures that you might imagine in a kind of classic EU internal negotiation. The response to it has been, look, just hold the line for the moment. Um, It's for them to sort out and for her to come to us. Can't get involved in the Tory party politics. Is a deal possible in December? Absolutely. There are people here who think you can engineer something so you have a big financial offer effectively coming with simultaneous agreement on the kind of in-principle transition agreement. But a lot will depend on what Therese May thinks she's willing to give on the money, what she thinks will be tolerated in Westminster, and whether that reaches their kind of bottom line on what they're expecting. I think on the EU side, the expectations of what they will get on the financial side are uh, have been growing since the election and it's pretty close to 
their kind of opening demands on this. And I think that's where the difficulty might come. I mean, people inside the Department for Exiting the European Union are whispering in my direction of sort of numbers around 48 billion, which you know I think would go quite a long way to meeting those demands. I think there was a couple of interesting things, though, in today's press comments from Barnier, one of which was he sort of referred to criticisms. He said he follows the debate in the UK very closely and sort of said that he, he was surprised by the criticism he got for meeting with Nick Clegg, which I thought was interesting in lots of levels. I think it was a rather ill-advised meeting, uh, probably from him. If, if the Commission wants to be seen to be not taking part in UK political questions, then he should be careful about the meetings he has here with, with UK politicians. But the most interesting thing really was this point. He was asked a question and are the next two weeks completely crucial? Do we have to see compromise or move from the UK within two weeks to get through? And he said yes. Um, and I was wondering, Alex, if you felt that was a slightly set up question, really, or what that two weeks rests on. No, I think that two weeks probably surprised some of his team as well, at least in how emphatically he said yes. What they're really thinking about is a timetable of the internal meetings that they have laid out already for when they would need to have the negotiating round, get an offer from the Brits, take it back to the European, the other EU member states, and then at that point start trigger their drafting process for guidelines on the transition, which Mm. you you think are going to have to come together. My understanding was it's probably three weeks that is more realistic, the week of the 27th for a kind of crunch negotiating round. But a lot of the political groundwork, I think, will probably have to be done in the week before that at leader level. Before the money is put down, I think Theresa May needs some assurances on what she would receive in return. And those discussions may happen around there's an Eastern Partnership Summit in Brussels on the week of the 20th, shortly after the budget. That's going to be a pretty crucial week. And if the budget goes badly, it might make it the Brexit discussions harder too. So the key issue that's emerged out of those three that we're starting to get a bit more concern about is Northern Ireland, Alex, because he said on the bill, it's really over to Theresa May to see how far she can go. Is that far enough? On citizens' rights, as we've said before, they're pretty close to getting somewhere on that. But on Northern Ireland, it really is very tricky because there's so much trade between the border with the Republic of Ireland. And this idea came out for the EU that Northern Ireland could stay in the customs union or somehow so there isn't a hard border for political reasons. Nobody wants a hard border um, between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. But it's quite hard to see how that's going to work if Northern Ireland exits the customs union and the single market after a Brexit transition to, say, in 2021. What was the EU's idea for floating that idea? What you've really seen is a shift in the Irish diplomatic tactics over the last week or so. I mean, he kind of fits in the kind of canon of the Irish policy on Brexit, but they've made a diplomatic move, basically put on the table what they're looking for out of the December agreement. And it's not just a commitment from the UK to there not being a hard border on the island and agreement that the principles of the Good Friday Agreement stand. It's actual tangible, actionable words around that, and in particular, a commitment to no or to avoid or have no regulatory divergence between Northern Ireland and, and the Republic. Which must be an impossible commitment for the UK to fulfil. They would say, well, we're not we're not talking about the, the UK constitution. It's not a constitutional issue. It's a kind of technical thing about the rules on phytosanitary rules, food and agriculture, the single energy market. But yes, ultimately, it's the deeply political question because at the moment, there's a degree of regulatory divergence between Northern Ireland and mainland Britain because it's all under the umbrella 
of the EU. Mm. Once that umbrella goes, the question is who enforces these rules, who's caught, who oversees them. And if the UK is making trade deals around the world, they would have to carve out Northern Ireland. And those are pretty fundamental questions. And I think that really explains what a highly how sensitive this move has been by the Irish at this point. And it's high stake and they're aiming high. What kind of solution do you think there is, Henry, to the Ireland question? Because during the Brexit referendum, Ireland didn't really get much of a look and it was mostly into that category of things that will be fine and work themselves out. But as the complexities have unfurled, nope, it's clear nobody wants a hard border. The UK government would never sanction that. And certainly Theresa May's government is propped up by the DUP, which is one of the major political parties in Northern Ireland. They would never sanction a hard border either as well. And is the white paper that came out the summer had various solutions of technological nature, of having some kind of special status for Northern Ireland. Where do you see this debate going? And do you think the UK can offer something that will keep the EU happy on this? Possibly. But I think what we're seeing with this sort of demosh from the Irish is a sort of attempt to leverage UK weakness in negotiations and UK domestic political weakness at the moment to make sure that they get more of a concrete move over the next few weeks before sufficient progress is signed off to sort of put their issue back on the table. And I think overall the Irish have played the politics of this pretty well and you know, making sure that Northern Ireland Ireland was one of the issues in the first stage of the negotiations and so on and they're continuing to play hardball. I do think this is soluble. I think there are uh, there's strong political will on both sides. I don't think we'll be able to find all the answers obviously at this stage of the negotiations, not least because we don't know what our future customs and other relations are like and not least because the UK government itself hasn't decided what sort of future trade policy it wants if it does indeed want to be able to seriously diverge from the EU in regulatory terms in future. I think we have to be able to do that. But that question hasn't been answered within government, let alone debated. And finally, Alex, I suppose the last question towards this uh, summit is if it's not looking as if progress is going to be made, and as you said, it may or may not at this stage, is there any chance that the EU27 will start to broke, to break up because they've been so unified behind Michel Barnier and his negotiating position? This would be such high stakes if that nod isn't given. Could that be a game changer? It's over time. It's obviously going to be, become more and more difficult for the 27 to maintain this front. I think in December, there wouldn't a kind of serious fragmentation of their position. There'd clearly be a very lively debate, especially if the UK make an offer that's pretty close to what they would have wanted on sufficient progress. The problem with it not going well in December is that before the October summit, you had the Florence speech, there was a sense of, you know, an offer being made of a bit of positive mood, the EU could reciprocate that. I think if it goes badly in the next few weeks, it's going to be harder to make that December summit look like some, a kind of another constructive step towards a deal, and it will make it difficult. And the closer, you, the further you get into 2018, the more the, the interests of the member states will diverge between those with kind of very intense trading relations with the UK, Ireland and the very existential problems it faces and other member states that have a very different agenda and set of priorities. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to George, Alex and Henry for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Madison Derbyshire. Until next time, thanks for listening. 
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 